0: Now, uh, with that being said, please open your Bible with me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts. We are continuing on in our series, Sent, Sent and we're going to be in Acts chapter 4. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4 this morning. And before we begin to read anything from the Word of God, I just want to uh, kind of fill you in A little bit on what we're gonna be talking about today. One of the primary objections to Christianity in our world is the idea that Jesus is the only way of salvation. It just sounds unfair to our culture. Now, I want you to imagine with me, and, and you might be taken aback by this story for just a moment, but that's the purpose of the story. I want you to imagine with me for just a moment someone that maybe you know. Uh, that has never heard about jesus christ and that person has never heard about jesus christ and they die and in the moment that they die they stand before jesus and he's like aha you didn't receive my son jesus and this person says jesus who i never even heard about this jesus And God says, well, it's too late now. And then he casts their soul into hell. And as that soul is tumbling away, that individual is screaming out like, wait, wait, this isn't fair. And Jesus yells out to them, tough cookies in Latin. And that's the picture that our culture takes of the Jesus that we've surrendered our life to. A Jesus that just throws people into hell. And without getting too much into that side of it today, there's also an unspoken rule in our society that tells us that we cannot tell people that their religion is wrong. Or that their own belief of what they would call true is wrong. If you want to be civilized or educated here in our culture, you do not say anything that implies that your belief system is superior to somebody else's. I mean, you can be sincere in following Christ, but don't get too excited about it. Our culture says, certainly do not get excited to the point where you attempt to convert people to Christianity. And I want to show you in Acts chapter 4 that there, there's a portion of Scripture that deals with two primary objections right at the very beginning of the Christian movement. So if you would start with me in Acts 4, verse number 1. And as they were speaking to the people, they is talking about Jan, or John and Peter, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Now I want you to stop. Because this is right after the miracle that we just saw last week, of Peter and John healing a lame man. And they're explaining that this healing gives us a picture of Jesus' power to save someone's soul. Now, look at verse number two. It says that the Sadducees and the priests and the captain of the temple it said they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, stop. How many of you in here know who the Sadducees are? Okay, there's a lot of hands that didn't go up. The Sadducees were similar to the Pharisees in that they were religious leaders in Jerusalem. And there were two problems that the Sadducees had with Jesus and Jesus' followers. First, they didn't like Jesus because they thought that he was a threat to their own personal power. And secondly, as a group... The Sadducees rejected the concept of the resurrection from the dead for anybody, anybody at all. So what does that mean for the Sadducees? That means they had no Messiah, and because they had no Messiah, they had no hope whatsoever, none. Now look at verse number three, and it says, so the, these people, the, the Sadducees, the captain of the temple, the priest, had said that they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Men. Luke specifies just the heads of the household, adding 3,000, or add to this number, 5,000, the 3,000 that came to know Christ just two chapters ago in Acts chapter 2. And so now we see 8,000 people who have been impacted by the gospel in in a matter of 10 to 14 days. 10 to 14 days, 8,000 people converted to Christianity. You're like, okay. Well, let me tell you something. Jerusalem, even with all of the guests, theologians believe is somewhere between the the total amount of bodies of 30 to 40,000. That's it. 30 to 40,000, so a fourth or a fifth of the people that were in Jerusalem in a matter of 10 to 14 days came to the saving knowledge of grace because of a group of people who were impacted by the movement. That's amazing, church. That's amazing. This is a massive movement that we're seeing here in the text. Now go to verse number five. And on the next day, By what means this man has been healed? In other words, Peter is saying, are you actually putting us on trial because we healed somebody? That's why we're here? Look at verse 11. Or sorry, look at verse number 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead, it is by him that this man is standing before you well. So if you're actually putting us on trial for healing a guy, then let it be known that the power that we used came directly from Jesus himself. Let it be known in front of all of these people. In verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now, how many of you in here know anything about construction at all? Okay, very few of you. That's great. That's great because the way that they built buildings in the past the cornerstone was the most important stone in the entire structure of a building it shaped the whole building the dimensions how tall it could be was framed by the strength of that single stone and peter saying that that's jesus Jesus is the single stone that laid the foundation for everything that we're doing from this point forward. And then the conclusion of Peter's entire message comes in verse number 12. Probably one of the most important verses in this entire chapter. And this is what it says. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen. Amen. Now, in verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Man, these men were not polished men. They didn't have fancy degrees. They didn't go to seminary. They didn't have a doctorate. They, they, they were fishermen and tax collectors. They were average Joes. But they were speaking with authority. They were speaking with boldness. And people were astonished. And so Luke goes on to say, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition And so they called them and charged them to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now what must have this been like for Peter and John? Right, They know the power of Jesus has just healed this lame man who was lame since birth and now he's standing next to them in front of the religious leaders. They know that the Sadducees know And they know that the Sadducees know that they know that the Sadducees know that this was the power of Jesus. And so Peter says, and you can almost hear the sarcasm in his response in verse 19. And he says, But Peter and John answered them, saying, Whether it is right in the eyes or in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. You must judge. Verse 24, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And if you have a physical Bible, I would recommend that you underline verse 20. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened Last week, we saw this miracle that showed us God's purpose for miracles. This week, we're going to address two of the primary objections that people have about Christianity. And the first one is that salvation is found only in Jesus. No, don't put it up there yet. Thank you. We need to note this morning... We need to note this morning that this is not a new controversy. Sometimes people think that it's, it's something new to our culture, but it's not at all. The apostles are not in trouble here in the text because they privately believed that Jesus rose from the dead. They're in trouble here in the text because they convinced 8,000 people to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And then they told all of the other people that disagreed with them that they were dead wrong about Jesus and that one day they would be held accountable by God for what they believed or or the stance that they took and that there was no other name under heaven by which they must be saved. Church, the world into which Christianity was birthed was an extremely pluralistic world and the Romans perfected that. Throughout the entire span of all human existence and history, it has always been a fundamental religious question that has been asked. Are there multiple ways to get to God? Are there multiple ways? I mean, because that single question goes to the very core of what's wrong with the world, but also how to fix what's wrong with the world. And Peter's explanation to us here in the text deals with these two biggest objections that people make about salvation through Jesus Christ. And so the first objection, Israel, if you'll put it up there, is this. Claiming that Jesus is the only way to God is arrogant. This is what society believes about Christianity. I mean, people say, well, if you think Jesus is the only way, then you must just think that you're better than everybody else. You you see things that nobody else sees. Or maybe it is that God prefers you and the people that believe like you over others. And so then let me ask this question of us this morning. Did you see anywhere in this text where Peter claimed to be smarter than anybody else? Anywhere? Did you see anywhere? The answer is no. In fact, the text goes out of its way to point out that these men were not smarter than anybody else. Look back at verse 13. He says, And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. They were astonished. You guys understand that Luke, the man who wrote this, was a doctor, right? That means that he was smart. Luke was a doctor, and he's like, hey, listen... Um, these guys here are not the spiciest Doritos in the bag. They're, they're not the brightest crayon in the box. They're, they're really not. And it's even funnier to me that Luke was these men's friends, and he was a physician, and he was intelligent, and he's telling people, yeah, these, these are my friends, and they are not bright They are not smart. And I always wondered if Peter came back and ever read this and thought to himself, like, come on, Luke. Did you really have to put that in here? But as we look through the text, there is no presumption here that these men were of some superior intelligence. None. Peter simply said in verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We just, we're just telling you. We're just telling you what we were witness to. In other words, this has nothing to do with us being smarter than you. You know, when it came to education, the Pharisees and the Sadducees probably had the apostles and the disciples beat. Right? Hands down. Their, their IQ and knowledge of the laws were probably much higher why? Because in order to be a religious leader, you had to memorize all 613 laws. So their IQ was probably higher. And if they were in our society today, they probably would have had more degrees hanging on their wall than a thermometer does. But Peter said, There was this guy. There was this guy, and you killed him because you thought he was a fraud. And you put him in a tomb, and you guarded it with a garrison of Roman soldiers, but then he came back from the dead just like he said that he would, and we saw him, and we ate with him on the beach, and we watched him ascend into heaven. No offense to your massive education none whatsoever but if I have a choice between believing a man who said he was going to raise from the dead and then did or agreeing with you because of the degrees on your wall I'm going with the man who raised from the dead I'm going with that man which then leads me to this question is it arrogant to believe that Jesus is who he says that he is you're right no It could be just as arrogant, if not more, to say that Jesus is not who he says that he is. And so Christian faith this morning, church, is believing that God spoke in and through Jesus and told us who he was. And that it was verified by prophecy and miracles, but most importantly, it was verified because of the resurrection. And so to believe to believe in Jesus Christ is not arrogant. You might charge that it might be gullible, but it's not arrogant. Peter said, Look, Jesus spoke. And so we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Believing Jesus is who he says he is, if you ask me, is quite humble. I mean, I mean, it means that we have to admit that we are not smart enough to figure out the truth. And so God had to come down and reveal it to us. He had to bring it here to us. And is Peter ever saying here that they are morally superior? No, he's not. In fact, if you go back to the last chapter and you look at what Peter says after the man is healed, Do you guys remember last week? He said, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why are you staring at me? Why? 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 Because it's not by our own power or piety that this man has been made able to walk. It is by the power of God. And so Peter at every turn has always talked about how God's salvation was a gift of grace and just like God gave healing to this lame man when he believed. Not because this man had strength in his legs or he was better than all of the other lame men in Jerusalem that day. God gave salvation and does give salvation to all who receive it by faith. And so Peter's claim here in the text And our claim as followers of Jesus Christ is that salvation is is only found in Jesus. Amen? It's only found in Jesus. And there's nothing to do, there that has nothing to do with believing in the intellectual or moral superiority realm. None. And so you may be sitting in here this morning and and had these thoughts that I wrestled with for several years. You may be online. You may listen to this later and have this thought, "Well, I don't like anything that's exclusive and puts people on the outside." Do you ever found yourself in that place? If that's you, please don't raise your hand and incriminate yourself because that's not what I'm here to do, but I need you to listen to me for just a moment. If you get nothing else, please take this away this morning. If that's you, I don't like anything that's exclusive and puts people on the outside please all religious claims are exclusive every every single religious claim if you say that all good people of every religion go to heaven okay well then who did you exclude all the bad people you excluded all of the bad people which means that i guess that you get to define what is bad And I suppose then that the racist or the rapist or the child molester falls onto that list for you. And depending on your moral convictions, you might put the sexually immoral person into that category. Or maybe you're on the opposite persuasion. And you might put those who judge others for their sexuality on the list of bad people. But the point is, is that you have a list and some people are on it and some people are not on it. Plus, when you exclude bad people from your list, you can't leave out those who end in moral failure. You can't. You can't if that's the way that you take it. Or maybe you're saying, I'm not religious at all and I don't exclude anybody for any reason at all. That's not true. Why? Because every person has a moral compass inside of them. And every person has standards that constitute what's good and what's bad. And guess what? People are always going to fall into one of those two categories. The point that I'm trying to make to you this morning is that everything that we think in the realm of religion or morality is always exclusive. Always. It doesn't matter which way you turn. All religions and all moral viewpoints will end up being exclusive. Everyone has a line, everybody, of who's in and who's out. But the gospel of Jesus, the gospel is different. The gospel of Jesus is different. It has a different kind of exclusivity. And so you're like, Pastor, what are you talking about? This book here, before me teaches that our acceptance with God is not based on anything that I have said or done or will do in the future. It has nothing to do with my moral record or my education or my race or my political viewpoint. It has nothing at all to do with it. It is a gift that was given to me and to you because we repented, turned away from our sin and self, and we turned toward Jesus Christ the lame man that we saw last week that's now walking, that was supposed to be a picture of us, you and me. Do you know that if we go back to the Old Testament to everyone's favorite book in the Bible, Leviticus, we see in Leviticus chapter 16 A law that was put in place stating that anyone who was blind or lame or had physical deformities were forbidden from entering the temple. They were forbidden. And we're just like that, aren't we? We are just like the lame man. Paul wrote that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so what does that mean for you and I? It means that each and every one of us without Jesus Christ stands under God's wrath and eternal punishment because of it. We are all the lame people. Every single single one of us. And salvation was a gift of grace to any lame person who believed. Any lame person. And so you may think this morning that you're a bad sinner. Let me tell you something. God can still heal you. God can still make you whole. You may think that maybe you're not that bad of a sinner. Well, guess what? God's verdict on you is that you're still lame. (laughs) That you're, (laughs) it's not really a joking matter, though. Without God, we're wicked, we are dead in our trespasses. Every single one of us. I love what Tim Keller says. He says that all religions are exclusive, but Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity there is. And when you believe this, right here, when you believe this, far from making you arrogant and judgmental, it makes you loving and gracious. It makes you loving and gracious. Go back to verse number 11 with me in the text. Luke says that this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Like I told you just a, a little bit ago, the cornerstone set the entire foundation for Christianity, the dimensions, the shape of the whole building. Well, what does that have to do with any of us, pastor? Well, when you really believe this right here, when you really believe the words that that are found in a Bible so freely accessible by us, this gospel changes the whole entire shape of your life. Every piece It means that I no longer do the things that I used to do. It means I no longer go to the places that I used to go. It means I no longer listen to the music I used to listen to. I no longer hang out with the people I used to hang out with. Not because you condemn any of those things, but because Christ in you is so much better than anything that this world has to offer you. Second Corinthians 5 17 those who are in Christ are a new creation all the former all the old things are passed away and behold all things have become new and so from the moment of your salvation you may not look any different physically but guess what there is something different in you and it is the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And the Holy Spirit in you convicts you of the ways that you need to grow and change. And the further that we are in our relationship with the Lord, and the more we commit and submit to what we find in this book, the more we look like Christ. It's never gonna happen overnight, people. But God can heal you, God can make you whole, God makes you loving and gracious when you submit to this. And there's nothing arrogant at all about believing in Jesus. There's nothing arrogant at all about giving up drinking and drugs and a life of impure. There's nothing arrogant about that at all. There's nothing arrogant about no longer watching movies that has sexual content. There's nothing arrogant about that at all. Nothing. It's because you've realized that you are not accepted by your good works and that you have not figured out truth or that you're smarter than anyone except for the Holy Spirit's work in your life. God healed you when you were lame, when you were broken. He saved you. And because of that, He humbles each and every one of us. Sometimes we submit to it. Other times He makes it happen because we won't submit. And that's a whole nother sermon for a different day. But I've found the longer I have spent in ministry that the more we are with God and in God's presence, we become more gracious and more forgiving because that is what God has been to you. How many of you, um, I guess let me rephrase this. Back in October of 2007, there was an Amish community in Lancaster, Pennsylvania that had a horrific tragedy that occurred. How many of you know what I'm talking about? It was October in the fall. A gunman who said that he was mad at God took over an Amish school. And he sent all of the kids out of that school except for 10 young girls. Those 10 young girls he then lined up in front of a chalkboard in a single classroom. Two of the girls in that group then offered their lives to be killed for the sake of the other ten. And at that point, the gunman had become very angry and he ended up shooting all ten of those girls one by one in the head and then took his own life. Five... By some act of God, five of those young ladies survived headshot wounds. That's how we know the story. And in the aftermath of that tragedy, the parents of one of the little girls who did not survive, they got in their horse and buggy, and they took it over to the home of the shooter, and they went to the door and she knocks on the mom knocks on the door the wife answers it and before the wife could say anything the mother said that we're not here for revenge we lost our daughter your children have lost a father and you've lost a husband so we're here to grieve together we're here to grieve together even the cynical journalists that covered this story all said that something supernatural or divine happened here. If you know anything at all about the Amish, they're a fundamentalist group. Fundamentalists by any standard. But did their fundamentalism lead to hatred? No. Where did these young girls get the idea to step in and die for their friends? Where? Where did the parents get the idea to forgive their child's killer? Where? Because even in in the fundamentalist group like the Amish, we discover the centrality of their faith. The, The man on the cross loving people who didn't love him back. Giving himself for people who hated him, offering his life as a sacrifice for those trying to take it from him, and having, and at the very center of our faith fundamentally, we are changed in how we relate to people in the midst of our pain and our suffering and our trials. And if people see people, who are arrogant with the claims of Christianity. And let me tell you what, there are a lot of them. But if you see someone who claims Christianity out of, out of arrogance, that's not because they believe the message too firmly. That's because they don't understand the message at all. I've said everything up to this point to show you that claiming Jesus is the only way is not arrogant and so to our skeptical friends I would say be intellectually consistent everyone's view of truth and morality is exclusive including yours this is the most humble inclusive exclusivity because it declares our understanding of the truth and our acceptance before God entirely as a gift of God's grace. Which then leads me to objection number two as we begin to land the plane. Religion is a matter of personal preference. Religion is a matter of personal preference. You know, people say, look, you ought to be able to be free to choose whatever religion works for you. And if your religion works for you, who am I to say that your religion is wrong? Imagine, imagine it like this. If you like IHOP better than the Waffle House, who am I, which I don't know why anybody would like Waffle House, but who am I to judge you liking Waffle House more than, right? If you unwind watching war movies with a group of friends or if you're the kind who would rather go be by yourself and and hike through nature, that's okay. But people think of religion that way as well. And my question to us is this, should religion fall into that type of a category? Should it? I want to give you a little insight into the history of Western philosophy. How many of you in here know a man by the name of Immanuel Kant? All five of you, great. Immanuel Kant was the father of modern philosophy. A guy who said this, he said that religions are subjectively helpful, but not objectively true. Are you clear this morning on the difference between subjective and objective truth? Are you clear? Some of you are kind of giving me that deer in the headlights look, so you're not clear. Let me explain it this way. Something that would be an objective truth, the capital of Michigan is? Lansing. I thought it was Grand Rapids. that, That would be an objective truth. Because I, I I didn't think that it was Grand. I knew it was Lansing. You guys are like, what? No, an objective truth. The fact that Lansing is Michigan's capital, it does not change. Tomorrow, it's not gonna be a different city. A week from now, it's not gonna be a different. No, Lansing is the capital of, of Michigan. That is an objective truth. You wanna know what a subjective truth is? When my wife and I are laying in bed at night and I tell her that it's hot. And she says, it's 74 degrees in the house. That's hot. My wife's bundled up with three jackets and long pants and long socks. That's a subjective truth. That means that what I see and what I feel may be true for me, but that doesn't mean that it's true for you, and that does not affect the way that ultimately I will live and or die in this life. It is subjective it is subjective. Religion, Emmanuel Kant said, should go in the subjective category, something that can be flexed from person to person, something that can be altered or changed based upon how you were raised or what part of the world that you live in. And unfortunately, society has followed that thought line since its inception. But our, our belief in beliefs in God, are those truly subjective? No, they can't be. Is our experience of salvation subjective? Is faith in Jesus good for us just because it works for us, because it makes us have more uh, morality, because it gives us comfort in the dark? Look at what's being taught in the text. The lame man is lame, meaning he cannot walk. He needed a real power to heal him. The lame man did not need to hear funny stories about Jesus that made him feel warm and fuzzy on dark nights. He didn't need parables that persuaded him to be nice to people and encourage him to share his lunch with somebody else. He needed a real power to give strength to dead legs. That's what the man needed. And Peter saying salvation is like that. It gives power to dead legs. And you and I, salvation was accomplished by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't get out of the grave because of a subjective preference about life, but because of God's objective power over death. And that's what's needed for our salvation. Not a subjective feeling of religiosity, but the objective power of a new life. Do you know, according to Jesus and the message of the apostles, our salvation is not about some new philosophy or feeling of comfort. It's about a sin debt that you and I could not pay. Just like this lame man, it kept us from the presence of God. It's about being dead in sin and chained to our depravity, unable to break our addiction to our flesh and unable to walk righteously. And so God did for you and I what we could never do for ourselves. He paid our sin debt. He gave it up. And by living the life that we should have lived, he died the death that we should have died. And so that's when we receive him, we are declared righteous on the basis of what Jesus has done, not anything that we've said and done. And when he was raised from the dead, he gave us the possibility for him to live inside each one of us through the Holy Spirit, infused with the power of new life. Jesus said I will be wounded for your transgressions I will be bruised for your iniquities the chastisement of my peace will be upon them and by my wounds they will be healed their sins may be as scarlet but Jesus made them what? made them white as snow and then we get to the New Testament and we hear that we will be buried with him through baptism, and whoever believes in that death, burial, and resurrection shall be raised to walk in newness of life. And so, can I boil all of this down into one question? All of it. There's really only one question that separates the gospel from every other religious message in the world. Who can save us? Who can save us? Can we save ourselves? I mean, because if we could save ourselves, there would be multiple ways to get to God. Like choose, choose the path. Do your best. All right, just try to be a good person in some religious way that you have chosen. Just, just, just do that. But if, if God is the only way who can save us, then salvation is only found in the place where he has provided it. What did Peter say? There is no other name under heaven by which you and I can be saved except for the name of Jesus Christ. No other name. And so there are two things to verse number 12 that we must never ever look over. There's no other name that's been given. Salvation is given to you and I. And there is is no other name at all. None whatsoever. There's no other God name. There's there's no plant or tree or some magical thing. No, there's no other name under heaven by which you and I can be saved except for the name of Jesus Christ. And so here's my question to you. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did he rise from the dead? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then he was doing something to save us that we could never do for ourselves. And he lays out the runway for our salvation. And so if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that's great. But what are you doing with it? How is it affecting your life? Are you willing? Are you willing to let God make the rules about salvation? Are you willing? Because when we believe this, it changes how we see the world. You know what's really interesting about this passage of Scripture? Scripture. There are four things, elements, really, that stood out to me about Peter and John. Peter and John were bold, they were humble, they were tenacious, and they were urgent. They were bold, they were humble, they were tenacious, and they were urgent. By the way, God did not love and accept them because they were bold, humble, tenacious, and urgent. So please do not put them on your to-do checklist and think if i could ever just do these things maybe god would just be happy with me god gives his acceptance as a gift because of christ's finished work and these men understood that and that's what made them bold and humble and tenacious and urgent and so church do you want to start a movement because that's how one starts You want to start a movement, that's how it starts. Think of the unlikelihood of this movement growing as large as it did. A bunch of fishermen in the backwoods part of the world who within a few days of the movement beginning are already in prison. How on earth did this sweep the world? How on earth? Why? Because they believed the gospel and took its implications seriously. You say it's just not fair that everybody doesn't know. I'm going to say something that's going to prick your theology for just a minute. God owes no man salvation. God owes not a single soul salvation. Nobody. He does not owe man anything. And that any of us have access to it is an act of unspeakable grace. But what's unfair is not the people that don't hear it. What's unfair is those of us who do have it, don't do everything that we can to get it to the people who don't. That's what's unfair. That's what's unfair. We we sit back as though the Christian life is like a cruise ship, waiting for people to, to wait on us hand and foot. But, church, what if this is true? What if the world really is completely lame? What if they are shut out from the temple? What if they don't get to have the presence of God? What if the power of salvation really is found only in the name of Jesus? I've had people question over the years of being in ministry, why churches send people to other countries to persuade them of this truth, knowing that in many cultures it will set them at odds with their family. Why would you even want to be a part of that? Well, you're right. If it's not true or it's about subjective preference, then that would be cruel. But what if it is true? What if it is? Wouldn't it be cruel to not say anything at all? I mean, how cruel would it have been for Peter to walk on by the lame man and leave him there knowing that he could heal him? How cruel is it for us to not do everything that we can to share the gospel with people? I became aware of this when I was in college. I was studying the book of Romans one semester, and I knew it. And in that moment, it made sense to me. I knew in that moment that I had three choices that I could make. I could deny everything about Christianity right here in this moment. And this is what many Christians and non-believers choose to do, deny the truths of the Bible. I could deny the clear teachings that were taught. I could ignore it. Just completely ignore it. Just don't think about it. Give lip surface to it. Believing, but then living as though the gospel is not true in any way, shape, or form. Or, I knew that I could believe it and completely embrace it with my life. And it was from that moment studying out the words uh, of Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans, that my prayer began to change in this life. My my prayer life began to speak first and foremost, God, if you tell me to go, I'll go. And And it changed to, God, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. Wherever it is, whatever it is, whatever it is that you want me to do, whatever it is that you want me to say, God, I want to make a difference. Even if it's just one soul, I want to make a difference. Show me where and how to use my life to bring other people to Jesus. And a church, are you willing to embrace the implications of the gospel as Jesus is the only way? Are you willing? Because each one of you has to make one of those three choices. And I don't know where those answers are going to lead you. I really don't. It's not going to look the same for you as it did for me. Not all of us are going to be missionaries on foreign soil. Not everyone's going to stand in the pulpit like I do on a weekly basis and be a pastor. But God definitely calls and equips some to be doctors and lawyers and butchers and bakers and candlestick makers and moms and dads. But you can ask God to use your life for his purpose. There are 2.6 billion people on our planet that have never heard the gospel. And I want to close by telling you a story. How many of you in here know a man by the name of Hudson Taylor? Great. Hudson Taylor was one of the first missionaries to China. He said in a book that he could barely stand to be in the Church of England where he was from and hear the sound of a thousand Englishmen singing the praises of God when there were untold numbers of Chinese that didn't even know the name of Jesus. He said these words that He prayed that God would make hell so real to the church that they would not be able to rest until every soul heard the gospel. That hell would be so real. And as I read that, I was struck in my heart. I I had to stop what I was doing. I had to put my pen down. I had to set my Bible down. And I'm sitting at my desk and I'm like overwhelmed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I said, I can't do anything else except for seek God right here in this moment. And so I I began to cry and my wife came in to ask what was going on. And I said, honey, I just need to, I need to sit and we need to pray. And so she came and grabbed her chair and she sat next to me and we grabbed hands. And I said, God, please make hell so real to the well. Make hell so real to our church that we cannot rest until we have figured out how to reach Ionia with the gospel. Make hell so real. Start right here. Make hell real to me again. Make hell real to our people. I come in contact with people day after day after day here in our community community who are lost, who are on their way to hell because they don't know Jesus and they could care two bits about him. But church, we have hope. We have hope inside of us. We have the good news and yet we sit back and do nothing with it. There was a theologian by the name of Carl F.H. Henry that said the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. The gospel's only good news if it gets there in time. And so church, have you been captured enough by the message of the gospel? Have you submitted to the Holy Spirit's leadership in your life? Because this is what it's all about. This right here, this is what it is. It's either true or it's not. And if it's true, I'm begging of you to come home. I'm begging of you. Maybe you don't know all the answers, but you can see that he died for you. Have you taken the implications of the gospel seriously enough? Because one day we are going to stand before God and we're going to have to answer about whether or not we lived life in light of the global realities of the gospel. And so, church, are you are you a part of the movement? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we see before us, the challenge, Lord, to be gospel-minded and, and to have a sense of urgency uh, about us as, as we depart each and every week from this building. God, I'm praying that you would use this passage of scripture to ignite something within us. Use our small groups as we're about to launch them to to continue to challenge and push people forward into the community as we begin to do service projects to impact Ionia. And dare I say Lord, impress upon us the message of Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, so that God, you would be made known even more, and so the people that are living in darkness would see your light. Marriages are falling apart, children are wayward. Homes are being destroyed on every front, Lord. It it almost seems as though the enemy is taking more and more ground against you. And even though we know that the gates of hell do not prevail against us, Lord, I pray that you would give each one of us a boldness and a tenacity to share the gospel with the people in our circle of influence. That we're not coming in as heroes to attempt to save the day. But Lord, we're just bringing tidbits of truth into the life of somebody else so they find hope. And so God, I ask as I always do, give us divine encounters. Give us divine interactions with lost and hurting people. And then Holy Spirit, please be our mouthpiece. Speak through us the words that you would have us to speak. Give us strength as we depart from here, Lord, because I know that the journey and the battle is hard and long. May we be ready. May we stand firm. May we be a people that looks to you first. And as people see marriages restored and and bodies restored, God, they would they would praise you because it's only you. And if we're in here this morning, Lord, and, and we're teetering on the fence, Holy Spirit, I, I, I just pray that you would continue to work. Help us to get off the fence, Lord. Help us to be in the place where we've chosen to follow you with everything in us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.